This is week five of Lent. Um, we've been going through the, uh, the Old Testament lectionary passages, kind of tracking through the passages that the Book of Common Prayer gives us for the Lent season and the high holidays, Lent and Advent. We like to kind of sink in with um, kind of the bulk of the church that follows lectionary. Um, and so we're uh, been, we got into the Old Testament because this, this kind of cycle of lectionary, they focus on some of the covenants, some of the promises of the Old Testament. And Lent is a season of kind of wilderness and um, loneliness and solitude. And so it's, it just kind of seemed to me like this is the time when the promises mean the most. Usually when everything's going great, we don't think much about the promises of God. It's when things are really rough that we kind of hang on to promises, when we kind of cling to the Word of God in a way um, that's a little more profound than other seasons. And so it was, thought it would be kind of neat to just kind of track through some of the covenants of the Old Testament, some of the promises that God is still faithful to hold, um, even this many years later. And so we uh, started with the Noahic covenant um, from Genesis, talking about how God had covenanted with all living things and, uh, and made a promise to um, not destroy the earth that way again. And we talked about what it means to to serve a God who is in covenant relationship with the whole world, that we don't serve a Christian God. We serve the God, and he is um, a God who is in covenant everywhere with everything. And, and that gives us a certain responsibility to care for um, things um, the way God does and to be, in, in essence, in covenant with the same creation that God is in covenant with, which includes our enemies. We talked that week about loving our enemies and how difficult that is and that God... Um, gives sun to the just and the unjust and rain to the holy and the evil. And, and he doesn't show partiality um, with his love that way. And so we can't either. We have to love um, even those who are difficult to love. And then we got into the Abrahamic covenant um, where God decided he wanted to bless the entire world. And the means that he was going to use was to grab a people and form a people um, from Abraham. And, uh, and that kind of created the Jewish people um, from the children of Abraham. And we talked that week about how God, um, in the face of huge adversity, in the face of a broken world, his answer was a baby, a single child. God's answers are usually small and ordinary and just and little things like raising a family can have gigantic impact. Loving your neighbor, doing your work well and using just practices in your business. These, these little common tools are the way that God changes the world. Not that he never shows up in a big way, because he does, but a lot of times when he wants to do a huge work, he starts with something like a baby. And we see that pattern over and over again in the scripture. Then we went to the um, Mosaic Covenant and we talked about um, when God shows up on the mountain and he uh, uh, delivers the kind of the first written scripture. Um, we assume he had ways of talking to people because people before that were making sacrifices. They were doing wrong and they seemed to know they were doing wrong. So there's, there's probably oral tradition and other ways that God had to speak. But something about Sinai creates this um, concept where God inspires a writer and the writer writes and it becomes scripture. And so God created... Um, in essence, the written word on Sinai. And then he also created a people gathered around the word. And so we talked about, uh, um, about kind of the creation of the scripture. And then last week, 
Um, to my chagrin, we had to deal with the, uh, the serpent in the wilderness, which is not one of my favorite passages. It's, it's, uh, it, it's tough to handle hermeneutically. Um, but it was, uh, we talked about how God kind of created this idea of faith uh, being the currency of the kingdom. Um, how he didn't take them, he didn't take away the snakes, he gave them a means of salvation um, in the midst of, of these biting serpents. And so um, we talked about how Jesus kind of drew that type forward and he said, just like the snake is lifted up, so I'm going to be lifted up. And, and faith kind of becomes this means by which um, God moves in our lives. And so tonight we're getting into um, a new passage and time-wise, we're taking a pretty big jump into the future. Uh, so far, we've, we've captured a pretty small amount of time and, uh, and we kind of ended there while they were still in the wilderness. So by the time we get to tonight's passage, the people of Israel have gone into the land. Um, they've settled as much as they did. Um, we had the season of the judges, which is when Ruth happened, which was our last book study. Um, and then they had the era of the kings. They had three kings reign before the kingdom was split into north and south, the north being what they called the kingdom of Israel, the south being the kingdom of Judah. Eventually, the kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity into, into Assyria, and they kind of vanished off the scene. And, and meanwhile, down in Judah, kind of the only um, kingdom left uh, of Israel, uh, there's this king named Josiah who, uh, who takes over reign when he's like eight years old, very young. And uh, there had been kind of a... Kind of a uh, uh, lineage of bad kings in front of him, and uh, and things weren't going well. The pretty much God had been forgotten. There was uh, idol worshiping places all over the kingdom, and uh, Josiah was just wanting to clean up the the temple, from what we can tell, um, just wanting to kind of clean house and see what was there. And stumbled across um, his servant stumbled across the Torah. And, uh, and they read it, and you can tell Josiah had never really been taught because he was kind of stumped, like just flabbergasted when he read the Torah and realized what God had expected of them and what their responsibilities in that were. He, he kind of fell into some of the covenants we've been talking about, and he starts this revival. And uh, he goes out, and he's, he's kind of wiping out these, uh, these altars to other gods and tearing down his shearer poles and just cleaning house. Um, and leads what uh, is believed to be the biggest revival in um, Jewish history. And in this time, um, eventually his reign kind of comes to an end and Israel kind of falls back into their pattern. And right around this time, God calls a young man named Jeremiah to kind of speak out um, some prophecies against his nation. And, and what's interesting is when we read these prophets, we have a tendency to think of prophets and and prophecy as kind of a foretelling and like a, these, these people that are kind of focused on future events. And tonight's passage actually happens to be one of those passages. But when you read Jeremiah and some of the other prophets, they were, they were more focused with the present. And what made them generally unique was they, they had this big picture understanding of things. And they would, they would see trends and patterns in the nation and the way the nation was acting and the way the nation was treating their marginalized and the way the nation was responding to the nations around it. And, and they would kind of see this big picture thing. And, and a lot of times I think what they were doing was going, you know, we have a, we have a tendency to think of the prophets um, as getting these like real kind of ethereal messages and just translating them, you know, to the people. And there's a few that 
almost seem like they're that way. Very, very weird stuff. Ezekiel, I don't even get it all. But, um, but Jeremiah, a lot of them, I think, just saw what was happening and they were like, this cannot end well. I, I can see the direction this is going. And that prophetic voice um, amongst the Jewish people usually has more to do what's happening right now and the direction it's heading. And, and usually that opens up to, um, you know, how God is, is going to judge what's happening and then what kind of restoration you might be able to look forward to on the other side of that judgment. But usually it's these people that had a kind of a big picture vision of what's going on in the land. Well, Jeremiah is one of these people. And so, uh, and so he gets called as a very young person to prophesy. And in the midst of his prophecy, um, he gives the prophecy we read tonight. He prophesies of a new covenant, this covenant that's coming in the future sometime. And this is right at the end of what we would call first temple um, Judaism. So from this point, not I mean, actually during Jeremiah's lifetime, uh, the people of Judah will be taken captivity into Babylon while they're in Babylonian captivity, which Babylon gets overthrown. And it's it's a few kingdoms down the road before they get released. But the rabbis are kind of created while they're outside the land um, as a, as an attempt to kind of hang on to uh, kind of Jewish heritage and Jewish identity. And when they come back, they come back in what we call rabbinical Judaism or Second Temple Judaism. And it had a little different flavor. Um, some things for the good. We never see Israel go back to that idolatry they had in First Temple um, Judaism. But we also see them with this new fascination with um, with kind of the strict legal code that, that didn't seem to quite be there in First Temple Judaism. So there's a different... Israel's a little bit different before and after this captivity, and this is right at the tail end of what we would call First Temple Judaism, before rabbinical Judaism is born. And Jeremiah kind of uh, is in that place. And in the midst of that kind of closing of an era, he speaks of this new covenant, this new thing that's coming. And so tonight we're going to look at that covenant. We're going to kind of break down what it's not, um, because he kind of tells what it's not, what it's not like. We're going to talk about what it is, then we're going to talk about kind of some of the implications of that, and then kind of how that works and what it looks like. So it's a pretty tall order. So let's start with what it's not. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he kind of, this is an obvious point back to the Mosaic covenant. This is an obvious point back to the covenant made when they came back to, uh, or when they came out of Egypt. And he says, this is not like that covenant. Like, so we, we have to get that kind of fundamental in the beginning. This is something different and something new. And if it doesn't look different and new, it's probably not the new covenant. And so we have to get that. He calls that out very strictly. Um, so we're going to look at a little bit, a couple of the points of the, of the Mosaic covenant that are, noticeably different from this one because he kind of calls out some of these differences. First one we talked about last week is that they had built this kind of pattern where God would talk to Moses and Moses would talk to the people and the people would grumble back at Moses and Moses would talk to God. And, and it kind of created this intermediary relationship between the people and, and God where this kind of priestly figure stood in the middle of the people and God. And, and when God showed up on Sinai, 
He showed up so dramatically with thunders and lightnings and it sounded like a trumpet and there was smoke and that the people actually kind of codified that relationship. They were kind of like, you know what, we don't, don't let God talk to us. You go talk to God and then come back and talk to us. That's too much for us. And so they kind of solidify this pattern that had already kind of formed where from now on, they're going to have an intermediary between them and God, which uh, was Moses and then eventually kind of the Levites and the Levitical priesthood stood between the people and God. And so this is not like that. This is different because this is not that covenant. The second thing is um, the first covenant was, was on stone. It was, it was written and it was put in a box. And there's even a command, write this down and put it in the ark. And so this creates a geographical element to worship because there's a, there's a thing in a place where, where you now interact with God even through the Torah. It, it, there's now a, a spot, a geographical location whereby um, your relationship and your worship takes place. And this is not like that. And the last one is there's a, in the Mosaic Covenant, there's a strong human component. It says, if it's, uh, or what, okay, so now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. So this, this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant has an if, a really strong if attached to it. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. There's a, like a performance aspect to this covenant, to the Mosaic covenant. And this covenant says it is not like that. So it is not based on an intermediary. It is not geographical or location-based. And it is not um, performance-based. This is a different than that. We have, to, this, we have to get like right off the bat because sometimes our kind of relationship with God looks an awful lot like that, doesn't it? It's still, and, and so first and foremost, we have to establish this is not that. And if, and if it's not fundamentally different than that, then this prophecy doesn't work. This thing called the new covenant isn't really the new covenant. So that we have to establish. This is a fundamentally different from this mosaic understanding of, of intermediaries, location, and performance. So this new covenant, um, and so this is not just a cliche phrase. This is not just like because it's further in the future we call it new. This new means different, means new, because he comes out and says this this will be a covenant that's not like that covenant. This will not be like that. This is different. And so he actually draws a, a pretty fundamental distinction. So what is this covenant? If it's not that, what is it? So it has no intermediaries, it has no geographical component, it has no performance based, which means this is this is a purely divine act. This is a this is a purely um, this is God's work. This isn't a mutual like um, if you will, if then relationship. This is an act of God. This is this is purely God's work. So let's kind of look at how this happens. Um, it says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So here's the first thing we want to get. This new covenant is still law. And sometimes we miss this. Sometimes when we talk about law and grace, we think we're saying law and no law. 
And that's not what's happening here. This new covenant isn't an anti-law covenant. This isn't a, uh, this isn't a law or no law thing. The, the law hasn't changed. And so this is also important to catch that, that something in this should not contradict the law that was written down because the law hasn't changed. You see, you still, the law is its own entity. It's its own thing that God gave to Israel and it hasn't changed. What's changed is the location, right? The law hasn't changed. The location has changed. It's gone from tablets in an ark to heart and inside of us. And, and that's a, it's a fundamental change, but we've got to be careful to realize that's not a change in the law itself. It's only a change in the location. Um, but it's still legal in, in its nature. And, and, and the, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but we, we consider God to be a creative God. Actually, I got this from Bill when we were talking. We, we, talk, we talk about God being a creative God because he creates. We see his creation, and so we assign to him a creative nature, and we assume he has a creative nature because he creates. We assume he's redemptive because he redeems. We see his redemptive work over and over again, and so we consider him to be a redemptive God because he redeems. But sometimes we forget that he reveals himself over and over again legally through a law. So he's also a legal God. He's a, he's a structural, like, um, kind of code-driven God. He has parameters and structures and, and a legality to him. And we tend, to, we tend to think of legality and legalism negatively in Christianity. Um, and yet um, our God continually reveals himself through this kind of legal aspect. And he also reveals himself in loving ways. Like it's not his only aspect, of course. But it's one of the, one of the things that is kind of in our God's nature and we can't lose track of that. But, uh, so this is still a legal covenant. Um, but the law is not the only thing that is, is the same. So the law actually is the same. So it's not, it doesn't have intermediaries. It doesn't have a location. It doesn't have um, uh, the, uh, what was the third aspect we talked about? Going blank. Let me back up. Oh, it doesn't have a human component. It doesn't have a behavioral component. But it does have a law. So let's not lose track of that. The other thing... Um, that it does have is, uh, uh, where'd I go? Is this phrase at the end? Let's catch that. Let's go to the next, let's go to the next slide. Whoops. Nope. Where am I at? Go forward a couple. One more. There we go. This is uh, Sam's first day running our slides and I got off track. And so poor Sam's back there going, I have no idea how this works. Um, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within their heart and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is completely unchanged. Um, In Genesis 17, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. God quotes this line exactly. I will, I'm going to bless you, blah, 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 and they will be, I'm going to give you descendants, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. says this same line. He says a version of this same line in the Mosaic Covenant. says something almost similar. This has been the goal all along, and we can't keep track of this. This aspect of the covenant is unchanged, that God is forming a people with this covenant, and, they, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. This is, this is the exact same in every covenant God seems to make, that he's from this covenant, he's creating a people. So these are completely unchanged from the original. These have always been the goal. God called 
Abraham to form a people. He called Moses to form a people. And this new covenant is going to form a people. It seems to be kind of, and it kind of follows the track we've been making through Lent, you know, that God continually kind of zooms in on this, on this people that he's, that he's kind of creating. Um, so this is an internal work. This is something that is not geographical on tablets. This is something that's happening in the heart and to us. And this has some very interesting um, implications because there's no litmus test for that. There's no way to look. Um, so let's look, at, let's look at this real quick. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. Um, am I on that spot? No, let's go one more. There we go. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor um, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And this is where it gets really, really tough. This is the part we don't really like. Because when there's a written code, there's something in between you and other people that you can debate. You can discuss its, its application. You can argue exactly what it means. You can, you can break down semantics and logistics. And, and, and you can discuss it. And then you can really kind of use it to, to point at somebody else and go, this is exactly where you're going wrong, blah, blah, blah. But what do you do with an internal law? What do you do when the law is on the inside and you can't just argue and debate and, and gather around it? Something changes in that. We're actually going to talk about that in a little, but this is, uh, this is an internal code and it looks something like this. We're going to look at Romans 14. It looks a lot like Romans 14. These are some of the implications of this kind of a, of a code. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Does that make anybody uncomfortable? That's a tough one because let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. That's, that sounds like subjective ethics, if, if, and it, which is tough. We don't generally like that. But um, what's going on in this passage is um, at that time, um, the average meat in the marketplace in a Hellenistic culture had been offered to a god at some point. Um, most of the meat that you offered to a God was, and this is even in the Jewish code, you didn't actually waste much of that meat. The whole burnt offering went to God, but most of it, there was just a couple portions you threw on the fire. The rest of it you ate. It was just the, as you killed it, you offered it kind of symbolically to God and then you cooked it and ate it. Or the priest would eat it or the Levites would eat it, but somebody would generally eat it except for a couple, you know, um, a, a couple special offerings that got fully burnt to God. Um, and even then you use some parts of it to hide and stuff you could still use. Um, but in a polytheistic culture like the Hellenistic Europe was, um, there was gods everywhere, you know, and, and almost every piece of meat you bought in the marketplace had been offered to some god. And that bothered some Christians. They were like, can we really eat this meat that's been, that's been offered up to a false god? And they struggled with this. And wouldn't that be idolatry in some form if we're kind of partaking of this and other people are like, dude, it's, it's a chunk of wood that they carved into something. And who do, why do I care? It's meat. I like meat. And so, it's, you know, why am I going to say no to steak because of a statue that the thing was sold in front of? And, and, 
And they were, they were arguing about this and they were fighting about this. And so Paul, when he's, what he says here, which I'm sure didn't make anybody happy, was, yes, you're both right. Absolutely. You know, yes, those of you who it bothers you to eat that piece of meat, absolutely don't eat the meat. That would be terrible. That would be sin. And those of you who have no problem with the meat, enjoy your steak. I like mine medium rare. Um, you have no problem. Enjoy. Give God thanks for the meat. And, and it, gets, it gets more complicated because he talks about, you know, not flaunting or stumbling your brother by kind of flaunting your liberties in front of him. Like, man, this sure is good. Like, are you sure you don't want some? You know, like, don't tempt them away from their convictions, you know. And he talks about some of the implications, but he brings in clothing, special days. Some people held special holy days. Um, and some people didn't. Some people saw every day alike. And, and it, this extends to eating and drinking and clothing and and like even your haircut, if God lays on your heart to get your haircut because it, you, it feels wrong in your heart to have it look a certain way, then it's a sin for you to not get your haircut. And, that's, and, it, and so this creates a tension within us because it means that we may not all see things the same way. And this gets really tough because, um, and we've talked about this before, I, as we come up here and we declare the word, and, and this is the one that I, I use all the time and mostly because it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. But if I come up and I tell you that God is a life giver, he's for life. Death is the enemy. Our God gives life and gives life abundantly and he's about life. And you, one person can walk out of this room and, and join a, a pro-life rally against abortion because their God is for life. And another person can join a, a pacifist line against war because their God is for life and he's against death. And those two people can be motivated by the same truth, by the same scripture, and it look very different. And when those two people, you know, go out and live their lives, it might look very, very different, but they're both being motivated by the same truth in their heart. And that is, that's tough to live out for us when, because we like black and white on paper, because then we can just point at it and argue at it and say, I don't care what you say, this says you're sinning and blah, blah, blah. And we like that. It's tough when we have to honor someone else's convictions. And this is, the, the beauty of this is what we call the spirit of the letter versus the, the, or the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. It's because this changes kind of the essence of law for us in, in a big way. Because, and we talked about it um, several weeks ago now, that in my house, if I, um, if I give my kids an order to clean the house, we want the house clean, and we leave. And we come back, and we go, did you clean the house? Oh, absolutely. And you look around, and you realize clean is a very subjective term. That they, what they consider clean is not what we consider clean. And so we, you know, we say, what about this? What about that? What about that? Oh, I didn't know you wanted that picked up. And it's just confusion, because they thought they cleaned it. And so you're like, okay, we can't do that. Clearly we have to write a list. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. And Esther does this. Half the time, as I'm watching, I'm like, you know, we probably could have cleaned the house in the time it took you to make that list. Like, but she'll make a list thinking of everything she can think of. And she writes every single one of them down. And we give it to the kids. And you walk in and there's just like a mess on the floor. And you're like, what is this? And they're like, it wasn't on the list. And you're like, <laughs> in fact, I kid you not. This is, we have... <laughs> so Esther's got these, she's laminated them. They're lists for each of the regular daily chores. And it's a little bit embarrassing, but there have been times we've come in the bathroom and there has been fecal matter just smeared on the wall. 
I have no idea how it got there. I don't even want to know what could happen to make that happen. And they will clean the bathroom and you walk in and that's still there. And you're like, they're like, it's not on the, I didn't totally did my list. And you're like, there's poop on the wall. Like, how can this room be considered clean when this is, this is on the wall? And, but that's what happens. The, the spirit of, of the rule is we want the bathroom cleaned. Whatever that means, we want the bathroom cleaned. And the, but if you get too into the letter of the law, you can miss. And this is how you got Pharisees who will separate their spices to make sure a tenth of it goes to God. And Jesus like, you miss the weightier matters like mercy and justice, like these huge issues that you weren't supposed to miss. Like because you were so focused in on the list, you missed the heart of the thing. And that's what happens when the law goes internal is suddenly we don't have a list to pick on, which is why Jesus can say, love God and love neighbor. And this is, is the whole law and the prophets. It's all wrapped up in there. If you're loving people and you're, and you're following this deep desire to love and revere and worship God and this deep desire to be good to people, you're probably not going to get it wrong. You're probably going to find it. So, um, so this is the point Paul's trying to get to, get to here. Um, and Paul kind of says it like this later in that chapter. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Um, or you, why do you despise your brother? For he will stand before the judgment seat of God. Which sounds very similar to no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. So this is supposed to be freeing. This is not, this is like, it usually hits us like a burden. Like how in the world am I going to pick on people if, if I don't have a law to pick on them with? But this is supposed to actually be freeing. We don't have to worry about our brother. We can, we can continually draw them back to Christ and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do the work. And this is where it's hard. And this is what I, this is what I believe. I think our tendency to, um, to want to focus on behavior and want to focus on, on, the, on someone's activity is ultimately that we don't have faith that the Holy Spirit can do it. Like we think that they're just driving us crazy with their behavior, but ultimately I think it comes down to we don't have faith in God that he's able to do what he says he can do, which is write his word on their heart so that no one has to tell them no God. Ultimately, when someone comes in here and they're just driving you batty and you know that everything they're doing is wrong and, and ultimately you can try to fix them or you can have faith that, that if God writes his word on their heart and if you draw them to Christ and, and continually draw them back to Christ that the Holy Spirit is actually able to do what he says he's actually able to do. So what is our job in this? How does this work? Because we do have a part to play. Um, so how does this new covenant work? It says, And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. And this is <laughs> remarkably vague. I wish there was like a, here's exactly, say these words and the deal is done. Like it'd be really great if it was more specific than this. But the reality is, when we talked at the beginning, this, 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 there's no like, human component to this. He's not saying, if you will, then I will. He just says, I will forgive their sins and re- or forgive them their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Which is 
really tough. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. So he basically says, someday I'm going to put my law on their heart because I will forgive them. Like that's kind of what is being said here. I will, I'm going to write something on the inside of them because they are forgiven. Is, that's the wording here that's happening. And it's very frustrating because we would love to know, okay, so what do I do? Right? What do I do? How do I do this? And it's, it's tough. And this prophecy really sat obscurely, even amongst Jewish scholars, until the Last Supper. That's when it kind of, until Jesus kind of intentionally pulls this prophecy kind of off the shelf and, and dusts it off. Because there's no other reference to a new covenant, which is interesting. If you search new covenant in the, in the New Testament, you get this and you get the Last Supper scriptures or some scripture referring back to the, to the Last Supper scriptures and, and one in Hebrew, which is clearly kind of drawing on this new understanding but this is not a common um, phrase in the scripture. It kind of comes out of nowhere. And Jesus, so Jesus, when he, um, did I, when he throw that next one up there? There we go. Um, it says, and likewise, uh, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this, is, uh, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So I think Jesus is intentionally drawing back to this verse in Jeremiah, because he, he just, pulls us out of nowhere. Up, up until now, there's been no reference to a new covenant. As far as everybody knew, this, they're still in the, the exact same covenant. And, and Jesus takes this cup, and it's, and it's kind of neatly ironic. In a, in a Shabbat service, um, the third cup is the one that comes after the meal. The Jews call the cup of redemption. They've got a, there's four kind of toasts in a Passover feast. And the third one, which is the one that happens after the meal, and this says after the meal he took the cup. So we know he's taking the third cup. The Jews already called the cup of redemption and they had a particular blessing that went with, um, with the way God redeems them. And so when Jesus picks up this cup in a room full of Jews and says, this is the cup um, of the new covenant, which is made in my blood, which is poured out. He's, he's drawing on a reference they would have gotten that this is this redemption, that this new covenant um, is redemption. So Jesus pulls this Jeremiah prophecy kind of out of obscurity into his life. And, uh, and he basically says what's happening is that thing that was talked about, that this is, is about that, is what Jesus is kind of pointing out here. This, everything that's going on right now, and if you remember, this is just hours before he's arrested, um, and he's going to be dead in, in no time. And just before he goes, he says, just so you don't miss it, this is about that. This is that new covenant that doesn't have an intermediary and it doesn't have a location and it doesn't have a behavioral component to it. This is that. And he uses those very specific words so no one misses it. And it actually takes the church a while to kind of sort out exactly what that means. I mean, um, theologically, it actually it's a, it's a little while before, the, before they start doing it. But Peter kind of draws on it in a neat way. I mean, the very first Christian sermon ever preached in Acts 2 um, it says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every uh, one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Um, up until now, they're like, we don't have any record of Jesus explaining what salvation was going to look like. We don't have any record of, of him sitting down and saying, as people come to follow me, this is how you do it. But somehow Peter knows this is about the forgiveness of sins. Because if you remember that new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied, I will remember their iniquities no more. 
Like, and so Peter knows this is about that. This thing is about that thing. And it's also about this internal work that you will receive the Holy Spirit, that something happens on the inside in our hearts that's different than the mosaic thing. And so Peter pulls that out in the very first Christian sermon. We already see the elements of that prophecy from Jeremiah that Jesus called out into the into it kind of into time again at the Last Supper. We see it drawing back to that. So Jesus basically said, this is this spilled blood that's about to happen is so that can happen. And so I think Peter had Jeremiah banging around in his head. He probably had Jesus' statement at the Last Supper kind of banging around in his head. And his conclusion is, when you come to Jesus, your sins are forgiven and something happens in your heart like that 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 word is placed in your heart. And then we know that that eventually moves to the Gentiles. And that's, you know, this prophecy, I think, is one of the reasons that that tension happened when the scripture started, when the gospel started going to the Gentiles, because this prophecy says the covenant is going to be for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah, which had to bring some, some confusion. It took theologians even longer to fully sort that out. Um, and some of them, you know, Still haven't, in my opinion, but, um, but, uh, but Peter figured out right off the bat that what Jesus was doing was calling this new covenant into existence. So how do we respond to this? Um, first, we got to know this is a new thing. That, like this is, we have to be careful that we, we don't allow this new thing to just ultimately kind of digress to look like the old thing that it turned back into that old thing that it was. And a lot of times we say all the right words and then we fall right back into, and now you have to do this and this and this and this if you want to be you know, in the covenant. If you want to you know, be blessed by God, you have to do this, this, and this. And we come up with a new list. And it's like, how is that new at all from the old thing? Um, which begs the question, what ultimately in a real way is different? Um, and again... It can't be law or no law because he said, I'm going to write my law in their hearts. This is still, this isn't law or lawless. We have to make sure we don't draw that distinction as we get different. What changes is the location and the medium. And that may feel like semantics, but here's how I think it plays out. And this is that line. And no one, um, uh, and no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. I think this is the most dynamic change that takes place here because um, in this new covenant I can um, I can absolutely do right and wrong I can absolutely follow the law of God as he's put it on my heart I and, and I have a responsibility to that and I have a, a burden to do that and it's gonna God's gonna impress things on me the Holy Spirit's gonna tell me to do things what I can't do is pick on you for whether or not you're obeying. That's the ultimate change. Is the Jewish law had a really strong kind of cultural element to it, like collective element to it. Like it, it had everything from capital punishment to um, sending people outside the camp, excommunication. You will be sent outside the camp if you break these particular rules. We're going to social shaming. Like there's all kinds of things that that happen when you have a code that's kind of in the middle that we're all gathered around when it's when it's in your heart how do i how do i come to you and tell you that what you're doing is right or wrong how do i come to you and and say 
you need to change this, you need to change that. Like I can, I can see something in your heart and compare it to what I have in my heart and that creates a lot of tension. I mean, one of my favorite ones is I love a well-timed, well-placed cuss word. It's just my favorite. It's absolutely my favorite. And, and I know that that really bothers some people and yet I fully believe I shouldn't let, low, I shouldn't let no corrupt communication come out of my mouth. So I don't like to talk negatively about people or, or speak with doubt um, or, or, or pick on like other churches or, or say bad things about people because I don't want corrupt communication to come out of my mouth. But switching the vowels around on a word so that it's a little more poignant, I love that. I just love, and, and yet I know there's some people that that hurts. Some people, they hear those words and my wife's actually one of them. Every now and then my wife will get mad enough to cuss and when she does, her voice drops. She's like, that's just... <laughs> and we all kind of laugh at her like, was that a cuss word you just tried to slip in there? Like, because she's terrible at it. Me, I'm a pro. I'm a fantastic at cussing. Yeah, but, um, but how, can, how can you look in my heart and know if that's right or wrong? And how can I look in your heart and know that... If, and this is tough for us. You guys remember how much time we spent on tension? This is an absolute tension passage because internal law um, takes away our right to judge one another. And that's, that's the biggest change is that's the, of this new covenant. It's not that it's lawless. It's not that we can do whatever we want. Chances are, I mean, as I was listening to C. Chung speak, like chances are um, this new law is going to push you places and make you do things. And it's going to say, you know, actually, you're supposed to be in China being a missionary. And you're going to go, whoa, that wasn't in my plans. Like, there's absolutely rules to follow. There's absolutely, like, there was, I was speaking with somebody who wanted to come to the church. And and there were some things in his lifestyle that he was worried about. and, And they were things he really loved. And he was like, I'm afraid if I come, God's going to, he finally broke down. He's like, afraid if I come, God's going to ask me to change. And I was like, oh, there's no, there's no doubt. I was like, chances are it won't even be the things you're worried about, but you never come without God asking you to change. He's absolutely going to pick on you and push on you. It might be that he wants you to, like you're thinking it's how you dress and how you do it. It might be that he wants you to be less racist. Like, who knows? Like, but he's absolutely going to ask you to change. He's going to work on you. That's part of the plan. I was like, don't ever think that you get to come and not change because we all have that law written on our hearts. And it is going to push you around. It might tell you to cut your hair. It might tell you to wear different clothes. Or it might tell you to stop saying certain words or stop drinking certain stuff or stop eating certain stuff. Like, and I can't tell you what that is. I can't pick on you and say, no, this is what you need to do. Here's your list. You know, and ultimately, that's what is different about this covenant. And it's, and it's rooted in... And here's the other thing. This isn't even in my notes. So I don't even know where I'm going to go with this. Um, is how do you work a law when your sins have already been forgiven? And that's, that's a pretty major change here. When he says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts because I will forgive their sins. And so, what it, so that drives you to a, what is the purpose of a, of a law if it's not to point out and draw out sin? You guys see the tension there? Like we assume that the purpose of a law is going to be to tell you when you're sinning, right? And that's, and that's kind of what we've embraced as the, 
as the purpose of the law is to show you when you're sinning. And that is one element of it. It talks about in the New Testament that that was kind of one of its jobs was to, to kind of reveal to us that we needed a Savior by kind of revealing sin to us. But what do you do with a law that doesn't have a sin component? Like when, when it's like, I will write my law on their hearts because I've forgiven their sins. And now we're back to what we talked about at the end of our Acts study, where um, the law suddenly becomes this beautiful gift. This beautiful gift to kind of direct you and lead you and guide you and show you how to have a blessed and full and beautiful life. You no longer have to carry it like this burden of if I, if I don't do these things, you know, I'll be smitten or I won't get blessings from God or bad things are going to happen or I might go to hell. Like, it's no longer that way. Suddenly the law is this beautiful offering from God to help us have a blessed and full life, to have the, the, the life he promised us. We told the story of that, um, that homosexual woman who, uh, I, if, if you weren't here, the, I read an article by a woman who was a homosexual and she became a Christian. And so she immediately was like, I've got to stop you know, this one part of my life. And she found she was struggling with that and she didn't want to stop and blah, blah, blah. She went back and forth and she uh, made a friend um, who was, uh, it was in college, he was a man and they struck up this great friendship and she could tell he was kind of falling in love with her. She kept trying to tell him, I'm not into that, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm assuming I'm going to have to be alone forever and yada, yada. And she said she came to the conclusion that she was going to, he, she knew he was going to propose. He dropped enough hints and she said, I'm going to choose to trust God's word. That this is, this is his kind of normal plan. This is, and so she, um, he proposed and she said yes. And when she was writing this article, they'd been married 20 some years. They had two or three, I can't remember now, um, beautiful kids. They loved with all their heart. They had a great life. And she said, if I'm honest, when I'm a- attracted to somebody outside of my marriage, it's still a woman. Like internally, I think I'm still probably gay, but I chose to do it the way God kind of outlined and it's blessed me. It's given me this amazing life that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And to me, that's the way the law works. It's not this do this or you go to hell thing. It's like this is the way to be blessed. This is the way to live the fullest, most blessed life, to have life and have it abundantly. And it's offered to us. And that's, I think that's probably the biggest fruit of this new covenant is we don't carry the law like a threat. We don't walk around with this threat hanging over our head because the whole thing hinges on the law is put in your heart because I've forgiven your sins.